Welcome back. We're going to take a look at this topic called Wounded Healer Part 3. And we're just kind of building on this concept of by his wounds we are healed. And each week, I don't know where it's going to take me to tell you the truth. And I just kind of follow uh, the lead as I kind of put the notes together. So if you have your handout, you notice the title for tonight is human dot 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 like Jesus question mark. And uh, we want to talk a little bit about the humanity of Christ and how that affects his uh, ability to heal us when we put our life against his. So having said that, we're going to uh, introduce this concept tonight, human like Jesus, by taking a look at this slide first. So I think we've all used this particular topic at one point or another, and that is uh, we have all said, I'm only human. And we sometimes use that mostly to make an excuse if we have failed to live up to someone's expectation, or maybe we've said it to ourselves when we have failed to live up to our own expectations. But um, when we try to comfort ourselves um, because we have not hit a certain mark or we've failed somebody, um, sometimes we tend to minimize the effect that it has upon other people or upon ourselves as well. And I think most often when we say I'm only human, it's not just an excuse, it's kind of an apology at times because we're unable to kind of live up to maybe what we hope would happen. And at times it's an expression of exasperation. I'm only human, how much more can I carry? How much more uh, grief, how much more stress, how much more anxiety, that type of thing. So what I wanna kind of re-engage with is the fact that Jesus is human too. And rather than seeing that our humanity leads us to an anthem of resignation, it can be a recognition that that's all that God expects us to be as human. And rather than apologizing for our conditions, maybe we should just realize that uh, our lives are an appropriation of both strengths and weaknesses and limitations and hopefully liberations that we have over the course of life. Hopefully we are freer today than we were uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So could our humanity be the best description or best version of ourselves instead of our worst? So that's kind of what I want to explore tonight. And we're going to do so by uh, making a point that Jesus was human. I think when we say that, we don't maybe necessarily understand the full implications of that. We understand his resurrection. We're only a few weeks past Easter. And of course, that resurrection is at the center of our hope in a world that's filled with pain. We're hoping that someday that pain will be removed and that in the midst of our own injuries and illnesses, that someday that will be resurrected to a newness of life. But at the same time, being a human being is kind of at the center of not only what it means to be a part of the human race, I think it's also a fact that uh, that's the primary characteristic as we read in the Gospels of Jesus. And uh, I put a quote here from N.T. Wright. He has a little series 
uh, called Everyone, uh, Matthew for Everyone, Mark for Everyone. It's just little paperback volumes, but this is a, a little uh, commentary set, set for the prison epistles and uh, Paul for Everyone, the prison letters. He says this, Jesus is the blueprint for the genuine humanness, which is an offer through the gospel. Jesus is himself the one in whom we are called to discover what true humanness means in practice. And I think that's a great quote to keep in mind. What does it look like when Jesus is under stress? What does it look like when we find him in pressure situations? And what does it look like when he is carrying the burdens of the world, uh, much like we have to in the course of our lives? So uh, let's talk about the humanity of Jesus and the pressure, not only of us being human, but also that pressure that was put upon the shoulders of Jesus. And how does that then relate to the fact that as the wounded healer, uh, his wounds are somehow uh, have a healing uh, characteristic for us as well. So any questions or comments that you might have before I turn to the next slide? So let's talk a little bit about the pressure of being human, just like Jesus. I want you to take your Bible, if you have one, and we're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at a few different sections of Matthew, just to kind of see how Matthew uh, has a caricature of what Jesus went through in his earthly ministry. So if you turn to chapter 13, chapter 13 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 begins with a parable, the parable of the sower, and then it's followed up by the parable of the weeds and a parable of a mustard seed and a parable of a hidden treasure and a pearl and the parable of this net that is cast out. And after all these parables are told in chapter 13, what we find as we come down to verse 53 is what it says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So he is teaching and he's engaging with people and he's going to go back to his hometown, verse 54. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. And they asked this question, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? and they took offense at him. Interesting comment. So they're questioning his knowledge, his wisdom, his ability to teach, and yet this tagline in verse 57 is really interesting that they took offense at some of the things that he was doing and saying. Uh, maybe he, in his teaching, was confusing them by the, the parables. Maybe he said some things that went cross grain to their own worldview. Who knows? But what we find is they look at him as a villager and they say, how does he have all this wisdom? He comes from this small little town of Nazareth. And then they then the text tells us that uh, they question um, about even his family, Mary, his mother and his brothers and his sisters and so forth. 
And then they took offense at him. And here's how Jesus responds. The next line says, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. So the first thing that we notice is that when he goes back to the little village of Nazareth, he's being rejected. And I think all of us have been in a situation where um, we've always been treated kind of like the little kid in the family. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced the fact that you're grown adults and yet when your parents were alive or if they're still alive, uh, they still kind of have this uh, way of treating you as if you're still, I, I guess, a kid or, or don't know enough, that type of thing. And um, maybe that's what's happening in this little village. Uh, he comes back and maybe there's a little bit of envy because he's becoming popular with the masses. And of course, this small little town uh, maybe uh, most of the people were still stuck there in their own trade. They didn't move beyond that little village too much. So there could be a number of dynamics that are going on. But the first thing that we notice is the fact that Jesus feels some hurt. Um, there's some pain, I think, in these words, only in his hometown and in his own house as a prophet without honor. And I think all of us have felt that way at times where we haven't been respected. Um, maybe our opinion has not been taken seriously. Maybe we have made something of ourselves, and that threatens somebody else. And so they have to poke holes into our lives, uh, criticize and that type of thing. So the first thing we notice here is Jesus is responding, I think, with human emotions. And the human emotions is, He's going back to his village. And I think after a long stretch of teaching and healing, he was probably doing what we would all like to do. And that is, you know, just rest a little bit, um, uh, sit back and take it easy before he goes on his next itinerant uh, trip, wherever that might be. But that's not what he meets as he comes back to his hometown. So first observation is his hurt that he feels that he's being rejected by people who have known him well. You have some thoughts on that? Any comments on that? Okay, so and then in verse 58, it tells us that it doesn't stop him, though, even in the midst of this emotional wound that he is uh, carrying. It says in verse 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, what's interesting to me in verse 58 is it's stated in the negative. He didn't do the abundance of miracles, maybe that he was doing in other locations, but by implications, it's, it, it says here that he was doing some. He did not do many miracles. So he must've been doing some miracles and he reached down deep inside of him and ministered and healed some people. We're not told who in the text, but it's not like he said, okay, come on, guys, we're not accepted here. Let's turn around and, and head out. So he still has this ability to um, reach deep into his soul and, and in compassion 
heal some people. Um, obviously, he does not do as many as he has done in other locations. But any thoughts on that? So now we get into chapter 14. Now, I want you to see this is kind of building here. So verse four, uh, one of verse chapter 14, it says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So there's a miscalculation there, thinking that John the Baptist um, is risen from the dead. And then we're given the explanation in verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. So you have a flashback here of John criticizing uh, Herod's taking of his brother's wife. Her name is Herodias. Herod wanted to kill John, verse 5, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. But on Herod's birthday... The daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, so Herodias puts her daughter up to this, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. So now um, the king has to carry out these orders because he swore by it. It says the king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. So on top of personal rejection, Jesus gets word that his cousin John has been murdered. And the news reaches him of this. And what we find is he is carrying uh, grief. And we know that he has that capacity because when his friend Lazarus passed away in John chapter 11, we are told that he wept by the graveside of Lazarus. Now, we're not told his emotions here, but I think by his reaction in the next verse, we're going to see the wound that's deep inside of him. So notice it says in verse 13, after he gets this news that um, his cousin John has been murdered, um, it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. When people are going through extreme grief, their emotions um, often cause them to withdraw for a while. And that's what I think is happening here with Jesus as well. His grief, uh, his sorrow is causing him to step back. And he thinks maybe he's going to have some time to grieve, some time to contemplate, some time to pray, that type of thing. Uh, but he doesn't, he's not given that opportunity uh, as he tries to decompress, maybe kind of re-energize the crowds here about where he's at and they follow. Notice it says, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed 
and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So even in his deepest sorrows of grief, he still reaches deep down inside and has compassion on other people that um, are in need of whatever. We know one thing that they're gonna be in need of is uh, some nourishment because this is the lead into the feeding of the 5,000. But what we find is that he's healing their diseases. And I think all of us at times have felt, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I have nothing to give. And yet somehow Jesus deep inside has the ability to pull out the compassion that is needed in the moment. Any thoughts there? Now notice in verse 15 what the disciples do. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So obviously uh, this has been a long stretch that these people and Jesus and the disciples have been together. And the disciples basically want to send the crowds away. It's time to go home. Nothing more is gonna be done here. But even at that point, Jesus reaches inside of him and he's going to show compassion upon them by feeding them. Verse 16, Jesus said, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So now he's going to test the disciples to see if they're going to have some creativity and ingenuity to try to meet the needs. And they realize their shortage of resources. Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. And he directed people to sit down. And of course, you know, the story he takes the five loaves and two fish. He multiplies them after giving thanks. And it's interesting what happens. They distribute the food, they eat, they're filled, they're satisfied. And there's even 12 basketfuls. That's not by mistake. Uh, there's 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. I think each one of those baskets represent the disciples and kind of what they are to do. They're to pick, to pick up the broken pieces of people's lives and to continue to try to uh, minister to them and touch them and heal them. And uh, verse 21 says, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's it's called the feeding of 5,000, but that's not really an accurate count. There's more than 5,000, uh, including women and children there. So what we see is the healing and miraculous ministry of Jesus is connected deeply to his own woundedness. I mean, think about what has already happened. He's been rejected personally. Uh, his cousin has been murdered. He's tried to get away, and yet the crowds are pressing in on him. And yet he has the ability to show compassion upon them, even though I think in his humanness, he would have loved to just uh, chilled out. Uh, so any thoughts on that, that you have? And I guess that's where we tend to deify Jesus and say, well, if he was God, he could do that. And, you know, he had the ability to do that. I don't think I would have been able to do that. Um, but. I think what we're finding in 
the entirety of the gospel accounts is every emotion that we carry, it seems as though Jesus carries as well. And that only leads me anyways to think that he goes beyond his own self-interest here and continues to reach out to others, uh, even though he probably would have preferred to do something else uh, at the moment. Thoughts? Okay. So I want to talk just for a moment about underhumanizing Jesus. I don't think you can over-deify Jesus. He was God in the flesh, but I think you can underhumanize him. And what I mean by that is when we think of the temptations of Christ, when we think of this type of uh, scenario that we just looked at in Matthew, uh, we can say, well, you know, Jesus was an extraordinary human uh, being, but because he was the God man, he had abilities that we don't have. Well, early in the history of the church, what's interesting is there arose a cult um, that underemphasized the humanity of Jesus. And it's called docetism. <clears throat> and it's built on a Greek word, uh, uh, dokane, uh, which means to appear, and dokesis, which means a phantom. In other words, the idea is only Jesus appeared to have a human body. He really didn't have a human body. He was God, but they um, underemphasized his human nature. And it's a doctrine that seemed to be making some headway in the early church, because as you look at 1 John, and we, a couple years back on Sunday morning, went through the epistle of 1 John, but I want to re-emphasize tonight that 1 John is really written to kind of push back on this uh, docetism that we find. And I'm just going to read verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of 1 John. We're not going to go through all of 1 John, but I want you to notice the emphasis that uh, John um, tells us about Jesus in the first two verses of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Do you see the emphasis there? It's not a, as if Jesus was a ghost. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him. And it says here, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So in the first couple of verses, what we find is a introduction to the entire uh, letter of 1 John, where the humanity of Christ is going to be emphasized. And the reason being is because of this uh, growing sect that was denying the human nature of Jesus. And when we think about how John in his letter, um, and of course John in his, his gospel as well, really emphasizes the touch element. Remember we saw last week when Jesus appeared to Thomas, he says here, 
touch the wounds, touch my side. And there's this element of touch to emphasize the humanity of Christ that we're not seeing things. This is not some type of ghost that has appeared among us. This is a true human being. And if we are invited to become like Christ, we are to value that humanity and not underestimate it, not de-emphasize it. And um, so any thoughts there about under-humanizing Jesus that there is a tendency sometimes to forget that he was a real man in a real place that had real emotions and had real needs as well. Any thoughts, comments? So here are a few things uh, in your notes. I put this little chart and we're not going to turn to these passages, but I want, I just want to emphasize some of the common things that we experience as human beings, Jesus experienced. So Jesus was afraid. Uh, Matthew tells us uh, that in the garden of Gethsemane, um, Jesus prays that the cup would uh you know, be released. That was actually the John reference, John 12, 27, 28. But in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, one of the teachings of Jesus is to let go of worry, which is another way that we fear. When we have a lot of worries, it's because we're fearful of something happening. Uh, Jesus felt pity. Uh, he took compassion upon the crowds. We just saw that in the text. Um, we find different examples of that. He heals two blind men after being moved in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. We see that he is an individual that um, is, is moved to the deepest levels, as I already mentioned this evening, when he heard that Lazarus had passed away and he sees the tomb that he had been placed and he weeps uh, Jesus felt tired and slept when he's traveling through Samaria, the famous passage with the Samaritan woman at the well. He sits down to rest. He's so tired, he asks the woman to uh, fetch him some water so that he can drink. Uh, he shows us humanity often by sleeping. In one case, we find that even though there's a storm that is raging in the boat that he's in, he's fast asleep and I can only assume that that might be because of a long day of ministry and a tiring day of interacting with people that he is in such a deep sleep. And of course, Jesus needed compassion uh, uh, through the form of companionship as well. Uh, Mark 3.14 says he appointed 12 and, he, and the, uh, they are named the apostles that they might be with him, uh, that they might experience life with him and journey with him. So there are far more emotions that's, than what's listed here uh, that Jesus felt, but I thought oh, this, this is a, a good example of some of them. Any comments or thoughts? Okay, so next here, don't uh, dismiss half of Jesus's significance. Here's an interesting quote. Um, there was a Catholic journalist and a, an activist by the name of uh, Dorothy Day. And uh, she was often called a saint. And she responded 
to her uh, being called a saint by saying, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And I think what she meant by that is when we think of the tradition that the Catholic Church takes certain individuals that have done something significant or displayed some type of miraculous experience and they make them a saint. And every picture, usually within Catholic iconography, uh, there's always kind of a halo over their head. And I understand it's to be a representation that this is an elevated individual. However, one of the things that comes along with that is to think, well, this person is not as human as the rest of us. And sometimes there are certain positions like that that can be elevated, uh, a priest, a pastor, um, uh, a president, um, you know, different people get put up onto a pedestal and it's forgotten that they go through the same worries and stresses that everybody else, probably more so in some cases. And, um, and so Doris Day, Dorothy Day, not Doris Day, Doris Day saying, you know, uh, that uh, famous, yeah, right, uh, Dorothy Day um, said, don't call me a saint, I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And I think what she meant by that was, uh, we tend to over spiritualize heroes. Um, and I think, kind of doing so, we make them less heroic because, and they have less influence on our lives. And I think when we see individuals go through struggles, and I think this is why movies are so powerful. Uh, when we see a story of individuals who have gone through something significant and they've come out the other side, we can relate to the fact that it wasn't easy, that it was something that cost them something. Uh, they had to persevere through certain things. And that makes them human to us. But if you just kind of casually give someone a superhuman label, it kind of separates uh, that individual from the commoner, the person that has to go through life one day at a time and to struggle with things. And so what I think Dorothy Day is saying here could be applied to Jesus as well. Maybe Jesus could say, yeah, please don't dismiss my humanness so easily. Uh, remember, I am a human and what I've gone through um, is going to uh, it's going to pertain to you as well, because you're going to go through some of the very same things. So when we look at Jesus's humanity, uh, I think at that point we begin to look for some of the implications that it has for our own lives as well. And that is if he could if he could continue to reach down deep and do some things that he didn't want to do. Even out of his woundedness, he's able to forgive. Out of his woundedness, he's able to uh, bring some healing. Then I think it becomes an example for us that maybe we can do the same thing. And I put a line there on this slide. Jesus is both worthy of worship, he's God, but he's worthy of imitation as well within his humanity. Now, I think sometimes uh, when we make someone an idol, uh, they become kind of unattainable, whereas an icon becomes a template uh, for us. 
and I think there's a big difference between an idol and an icon. An icon is a visible representation that we can look to and it can move us uh, to uh, do some of the same things. Uh, idolatry, though, has some type of worship involved in it. And, um, and to put someone on a level of worship um, and he's unattainable, she is unattainable or whatever, is not the same thing as making that person an example. And I think one of the things in Hebrews chapter 11, you remember Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith, is it's intended to give us some icons to look at, to say these individuals went through certain things. They can inspire us to go through them and come out the other side as well. Um, I do not think that... Um, Hebrews chapter 11, where you have a list of all these names, is meant as an intimidation. I think it's meant to be an encouragement that we can read about the lives of these individuals and they can help us um, when we're going through some of the same things as well. Any thoughts there? So here's our challenge. Are we able to relate to Jesus on the human level? And I think we can. We can relate to Jesus' human life. And hopefully we don't miss half of his significance by missing his humanity. Uh, we don't cognitively miss the fact that he's human. I think mentally we realize that he was both God and man in one person. However, I think we can miss it experientially. And what I mean by that is, I think we, like we were talking about last week, we have to kind of use our imagination at times. We have to be able to kind of put ourselves in the place of Jesus in certain situations and, and ask ourselves, what was he feeling in that moment? Uh, what were the things that he was wrestling with deep down inside him? Um, so many times we want to associate Jesus with kind of being up there because he's ascended. Um, I think some people do that to keep Jesus maybe at a safe distance. But um, I think to really allow the wounds of Jesus to touch our wounds, we have to think about what he went through experientially. So to do that, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, this is an old hymn. Most scholars believe that this is not just a poem. You can see that it's indented there in, in a poem format. But they believed it was a hymn of the early church as well. And this is often called the kenosis passage. Uh, kenosis meaning self-emptying of Jesus. And I want you to notice how it begins. This is interesting. Verse five, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, to do that, you got to look at what came before. So look at verse one. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, 
then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider, your, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then comes that line, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. But do you notice the emotions that are listed there in verses one through three? If you have any encouragement, we're all in need of encouragement. If there's any comfort, we're all in need of comfort. If there's any fellowship, we're all in need of fellowship. If there's any tenderness and compassion, we're all in need of that. Then be like-minded. That is, show your humanness to each other um, and be, be in the same love through, through one spirit and purpose. And then he gives us an example. Here's where that Christ hymn comes in, beginning at verse six. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And this is very dense theology, this um, poem. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So all of that is often called the downward descent of Jesus, from his position as being God, taking on his humanity, and that humanity is in the form of servanthood, and then he, in obedience, humbles himself to this state that he finds himself in, and then even dies on the cross. So we see the humanness of Jesus in these first several verses. Then excuse me, in verse 9, it turns around. Therefore, in light of this descent, there's an ascent. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father in light of his human descent and his obedience to God, God then therefore resurrected him and he has been exalted uh, and he is Lord. You'll notice it says here, every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that brings glory to the father as he has accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish in his life. Um, so I think this is a heavy passage of scripture. It, uh, it is, it, you see a lot of the emotional elements that are being pursued by the Apostle Paul in the Philippian church, but the example of it is Jesus in his descent and then his ascent. And maybe in that descent is where Christ can be most relatable. Um, the fact that he's been exalted, uh, that he is Lord of Lords, none of us, I think, can relate to that totally. But I think we all have felt times where we have been humiliated and 
we have been pushed down and we have felt the pain, cross-like pain of being accused and criticized and whatever else it may be. And, um, and we can relate to that um, because that's what Jesus went through as well. Any thoughts there? Well, the, the, this get, does get pretty deep. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I, in some ways, you always, because of the Trinity, you know, you know, John, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was, you know, was God. And, 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 and that really suggests that, you know, the, the, the Trinity existed in all time, of course. Mm-hmm. And Jesus and God, you know, are, are even though God is the father, you know, it, that's somewhat to me is a little bit interesting in the context of then what you've just read, where it sounds like the, the, he, it, it was, you know, his, his his final position was contingent on his descent and ascent, you know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's an angle that I think is interesting is um, it, it does seem to suggest, doesn't it, that his exaltation um, was dependent upon his um, uh, descent in, in, into life and the accomplishment. Um, that, that is, that's something you really have to wrestle with, I think, to, to go, okay, there's some mystery here that I don't fully understand why it kind of states if Jesus did not go to the cross, did that, does that diminish his deity? I don't think so, but you know, it, it's at an, it's an interesting angle. That's for sure. Any other thoughts here? That is correct, Beth. Uh, Beth just mentioned that the wording here is part of the creeds. And I think um, this particular creed circulated, I think, among the early churches. But some of the creeds that we recite, sometimes we recite the Apostles' Creed, um, the Nicene Creed, which comes, uh, the Nicene Creed comes a couple hundred years later. But um, it does have kind of some of the same language. Yeah, you're right. Sure. So the way we experience life um, is reflected in the way that we see Jesus experiencing life as well. And he goes through a lot of the same human struggles that we all do. And I want you to turn now to Hebrews chapter 4. Go to your right in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4. I think I used this same passage last week, if I'm remembering correctly. But I think it's worth a second look. Um, The humanity of uh, Jesus changes a little bit about how we understand woundedness. Even the Son of God went through woundedness. And that's what made him such a great high priest, as it says here in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, there's the ascent again, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. I find that phrase interesting, tempted in every way. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is exactly the same, but a lot of the same emotions that are there. So when <laughs> an individual is tempted to embezzle money from a company, did Jesus have that same temptation? Well, I, I don't know, but the motivations that we often run on, uh, you know, making an easy buck or whatever uh, by embezzling, embezzling things, these type of things are the emotions, I think, that uh, every person uh, at times struggles with, um, you know, getting even, anger and rage and all kinds of stuff. So all of these are also found in Jesus' humanness, and yet the writer says, and yet he was without sin. The feeling of these emotions is not a sin. Acting upon them can turn into sin. Verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the wounds that Jesus experiences in, in, internally when he's going through some of these things then becomes a source of strength for us as we look to him. And it says that we receive mercy and grace to help us during these times of need as we put our wounds upon the wounds of Christ. And I'm using wounds in a pretty generic sense. I'm not talking about physical wounds. I'm talking about emotional wounds and a lot of other things that we experience. So um, in this, we experience life through the way Jesus experienced life. And that is uh, a way of helping us cope with life and to, to get out the other side of the wounds that we are carrying inside of us. Now here, I give you some more examples. Um, and we're not going to turn to any of these, but I think, you know, you need to know how to deal with an enemy, you know, that annoying person at work. You can find some of those examples in the life of Christ. You need to know how to courageously step into a situation where you or another person is being treated unjustly. And of course, John chapter eight is when he steps in uh, and, and intervenes for the person, uh, that woman that is caught in adultery. Uh, third, are you exhausted from the chaos of normal life and you need permission to take a nap? Well, Mark chapter four, Jesus does that. He, he takes a nap in the exhaustion of his own life and ministry. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Well, we all know the story of Judas. Um, do you want to know how to enjoy a good party? Well, all of that is found in the Gospels as well, as Jesus attends many a dinner party. Um, so these are just kind of examples of how we all relate to Jesus and in our humanness, uh, because he was human. Any thoughts there, comments there? Well, again, I, I just think it's it, it's it's it, as simple as it may seem. Sometimes it's it's pretty it's pretty deep. I I, I mean I I think we all struggle with understanding or trying to understand what Jesus um, felt and went through, you know, in his own mind. In some sense, in other words, even though he went through you know a lot of the human issues as you've just described. 
you know, did he somehow know? I mean, I think part of us, we've watched too many <laughs> Superman movies, you know, when Superman yeah. grew up and Superman knew he was super, Superboy knew he was super, but he couldn't play on the football team because he would have, you know, run over everybody. Yeah. You know, it was this sort of thing of, you know, what did, what did he really, you know, as he went through all this, what did he really, you know, how was he able to separate the godly, the God part from the human part and then truly then experience it in the, the same way a human experiences it. And I think that's a, that's a mystery that's, that's oh. it's hard for us to comprehend because you're always thinking, did he really also, you know, the, kind of in the back of his mind know who he was and he, he didn't really have to go through this if he didn't want to. I mean, there's this, and, and yet we know that he did feel these in a human way. That's what makes him, who made him who he was, you know? And, and yeah. So it's, it's, it, I have a hard time, you know, trying to, I think, I don't think we can really ever truly understand what went through his mind and how he was able, and God was able to separate those. So he truly, he was truly human and went through those in the true sense, the same way we do, yet somehow no, how was he able to separate that from his knowledge that he was also God, you know, God effectively. Yeah. So it's, it's a that's tricky a, one. That's a great question. And yeah. did he, like Superman, have a kryptonite, you know, that he really struggled with as well? You know, these are deep mysteries that I don't think we can fully explain for sure. Yeah, it just gets, uh, it gets complicated, that's for sure. Yep. And I think, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in the, in the verse you met where it said, you know, where he said he took on the appearance. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's an interesting statement. Yeah, because appearance is almost like a—I mean, I don't want to say a disguise, but if you know what I'm saying, appearance is different mm -hmm. in some ways. I mean, I could—I yeah. think, think on the appearance of something, at least maybe that's the way, maybe not the way it was supposed to be interpreted, but sometimes that suggests that you're not—you know—you're taking on the appearance, but you're somewhat different also inside. If you know what I'm saying. And that's one of the verses that that little sect uh, docetism probably used as part of their arsenal, um, you know, the way that was worded. He appeared as a man. Well, he wasn't really a man. He only appeared as if he was wearing a costume or something, you know, that type of thing. But, um, but John really goes out of his way to, to reverse that. Right. No, I agree. So, but it's, so it's a real, it's a real mystery. I think that, yeah. Yeah, we'll never, we'll never totally comprehend. Yeah, go ahead, Esther. Yeah, he knew he could heal people, she said. Yeah. Yeah, he knew that. But then at times, he delegated that authority to his disciples as well. Uh, he said, you know, he sends them out and tells uh, them to do the works that he was doing. In the book of Acts, we see that um, uh, Peter and John, as they're going to the temple in Acts chapter three, uh, heal a man that's there at the temple begging. Um, but you're right. I mean, he knew he had the ability to heal. Um, the other disciples probably did not have that working knowledge of delegated authority or power and yet when they returned, you remember on the occasion when they returned and they were confronted with someone that was oppressed by a demon, 
and they they couldn't exercise that demon and they come back to jesus and they said you know we we didn't have any luck and and that type of thing and jesus then goes ahead and performs the miracle that they were unable to do but it was almost as if jesus kind of expected that they could have done it and um you know is that a faith issue and I, I, I can't give you the address. Of, I can't remember where that's at exactly in the Gospels. But that's a good example as well, that he had some expectations of the disciples. And if, if that is a, an act of faith, then um, is, that, is that simply something that was delegated to those 12 men that were the apostles? Or were there miraculous gifts that we see in book of uh, the book of Acts that were delegated to other people as well. So again, that's, that's an interesting thing too, but nonetheless, it's, you know, you're right. He, he knew he had that ability and, and he, he used it. Any other thoughts? It okay, was uh, got two more slides and then we'll be done for tonight. So we have a front row seat um, when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus to see the heart of God, I guess that's most important here is what does God see and feel in our lives? Well, we look to Jesus and he takes on our nature and we see him in the midst of his own emotions. And that reflects then the heart of God as well. And that should be something that brings us strength and comfort in moments in life when we wonder where God is at, whether he's absent or detached in some way. Uh, Jesus, it's interesting, carries the same body that has wounds with him into eternity. Um, I think it was brought up last week. Did Jesus, um, does, does, is his body different um, in eternity? Uh, are, they, are the wounds healed completely? And I, I think that when he showed what had to be healing wounds to Thomas, I don't think they were completely scars yet. Um, they, you know, that I, I get the impression that those scars are an eternal reminder uh, that Jesus entered into woundedness for mankind. And, and I think it shows to each and every one of us that God does have the power to redeem situations, but not necessarily erase the scars. Um, and maybe those are the deepest marks of pain and trauma that encourage other people as well, that we touch each other through our woundedness. And I think we all tend to put makeup on our wounds and we try to hide them, but maybe that's what's needed most of all. I said last week that you know, maybe the uh, maybe the great um, effect that groups like AA um, uh, is the fact that one of the first things that they do is the success of AA might be dependent upon the fact that when somebody gets up to say something, they say, "Hey, I'm hi, I'm John, and I'm what an alcoholic." In other words, they open that wound to 
encourage other people uh, to be able to understand that they're all struggling with the same thing. And um, that woundedness somehow binds them together. So I don't know. Um, God may not erase all the source of pain in life, but repurpose those both now and then I think it might have an effect on into eternity as well. We just don't know how, though. So we walk by faith, you know. Thoughts? One last, oh, that was the last slide. Okay. Um, so that's what I have for us tonight. Any other thoughts, questions? All right. Well, again, uh, next week we'll take a one-week break, and we'll come back to this topic two weeks from tonight. And uh, I hope you have a great uh, rest of the week. We'll see you online on Sunday. We'll be thinking about you in sunny Florida. All right. Sounds great. Bye. Thanks. Okay. Good night, everybody.